I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. It is May 15th, 2020. With me today is James Lois, or as I know him, Jimmy Lois. Jimmy has been a public health and nonprofit national expert for over 35 years. He began his career as a clinician providing direct care to the homeless and those with mental health and substance use. Soon he was taking on more leadership and policy roles in government and in the nonprofit sector. At the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, Jimmy was a CEO executive director of one of the largest HIV AIDS organizations in the country, AIDS Project Los Angeles as well as being a co-founder of the Black Coalition on AIDS. Jimmy has had several mayoral appointments in government as a health commissioner and a member of the board of the Homeless Coordinating Board in San Francisco. Jimmy has committed his life career to public service and continues to do his work for communities of color and those impacted by poverty. So Jimmy, welcome to Healthcare Untold. And, you know, we're almost completing our second month in shelter in place. So how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I get uh, out and run three to uh, up four days a week. I run about five, five and a half miles when I do that. And that helps my mental health. And I also spend time uh, doing Zoom meetings around health care, health care policy, specifically as it relates to homeless and to uh, the baby harsh point area. Well, I'm, sta- I'm glad you're getting your runs in because uh, I know I used to see you running around town a lot. And so I'm glad that uh, you're able to get out and uh, keep up your exercise. And I knew you would be still doing your work with uh, the community. So uh, thank you so much for doing that. So, Jimmy, I thought we would start our conversation today uh, with your insight on the impact of COVID-19 on people of color. You know, uh, you responded to the drug epidemic, the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, the HIV-AIDS epidemic, where I know you saw directly the impact of disasters, epidemics, and now a pandemic on the poor and the people of color. So, uh, you know, we were re- I was really interested for the audience to hear your perspective today on COVID-19, because I do believe this is going to just repeat itself again, as we saw in those other incidents. Yeah, I think what's important for us to recognize is that, as usual, people of color, African Americans, um, Latinos, Latinx folks, uh, are the most impacted because we are the people who are the poorest. We are people who have least access to health care. And then when we do get access to health care, it's on an emergency basis. So that those of us who are impacted by COVID-19, directly or indirectly, are at a very serious stage in the disease progression, and it's hurtful uh, and harmful in many ways to our community, to the larger community, but specifically to those communities of color where death rates are much higher than in the general population. And many, uh, much of that health status, um, whether it's high uh, levels of uh, diabetes, hypertension, um, that really are cofactors in terms of being at high risk for COVID-19. And so, you know, this disease, um, you know, is really uh, at, you know, our communities are much more at risk than many other communities um, because of the things that you said about the lack of health care, et cetera. What are you thinking in terms of 
Um, I know, you know, I think, you know, in the Bay Area, I think we've done a great response. What, what's your future thinking about this in terms of the impact of how, you know, activists like ourselves are going to have to impact or the kind of work we're going to have to continue to do throughout this process of response? Well, well, I think one of the things that we need to do is make sure we stay engaged to offer our skill sets and our expertise to our communities and to the larger community. And I think it's also important to recognize that we are the folks who facilitate and help communities of color use their power to address this pandemic and other pandemics. And one of the pandemics that impacts us that we don't talk as much about is the lack of access to work particularly those of us who are uh, in the service industries or the hospitality industries, uh, but are the janitors and the hotel maids and the people who do the back housework at restaurants who are living paycheck to paycheck and now have no paycheck. Uh, and those people are the folks who are most negatively impacted when you add into that factor food insecurity and lack of access to health care. Yeah, you know, um, it's really interesting how you're using, we're kind of using the uh, code word essential workers as the code word for uh, people of color, um, particularly. And, you know, the essential workers are being greatly impacted. But the fact that they're living in these conditions of small houses, large number of people, um, it's not only just the essential worker, but who they go home to. And I feel like we're kind of missing that piece. Not only are we not being honest that this is impacting Latinos, African-Americans, and Asian-Americans, and, you know, um, coming, uh, being a New Mexican uh, ancestor myself, you know, the Navajo Nation has been greatly impacted. Um, but, the, you know, we, we kind of don't, we kind of shy, shy away from the racial, ethnic um, identities in this process. And it's been kind of a slow coming for me in terms of watching what we had to do with HIV and AIDS. Would you agree with that? I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that, that we need to spend more time as communities of color relating to each other in terms of the crisis itself and what the impact is on our communities. I mean, for example, Chinatown has very dense populated apartments and we're not talking as much about what goes on in Chinatown. And the issue of race and class uh, and culture are definitely have impact on our status in terms of the COVID-19 um, pandemic, but also in terms of other diseases that impact San Francisco and the world at large. I mean, when you go back to the HIV epidemic, um, or pandemic, if you will. We had an administration, much like this administration, that downplayed the impact of HIV across the board, but specifically ignored people of color. When you think about Ronald Reagan, who never said the word AIDS during his tenure, uh, as the virus was exploding in communities and killing people of color at high rates uh, with no acknowledgement from the federal government. Then you look at this administration, which in the beginning said, oh, it's not a big deal. We have 15 cases. We'll be over in a month. And still, to this day, are arguing that science is not right. It is not giving us the information we need. And that the deaths from, from COVID-19 are exaggerated when many of us in the, in the public sector believe they're less than what's reported is less than what's actually going on, particularly in people of color. Yeah. 
And I also think that the fact that um, one of the things you just said was how important it is for people like ourselves who can kind of bridge those um, and translate in some ways between government, nonprofit, and directly to community, and how important during, um, you know, the pandemic of HIV and AIDS and now with COVID-19, you know, uh, you had to play a pivotal role in ensuring that those communities had voice and had representation. And I think that's the burden in some way. It's a good burden for us, but um, it is a burden for us to have to play that role continually as leaders in the communities of color. And I just, you know, really want to acknowledge you, Jimmy, as being one of those people who have done that so well. But, you know, as an African-American man, you've even taken it farther than that. I mean, you have been a great advocate for Latinos and for Asian-Americans um, throughout your tenure. Um, and I think that really should be acknowledged for that work. Um, but I think that important role that you continue to play, I mean, you just talked about being on these Zoom meetings, continuing to, to look at communities like the homeless population, which, you know, just been itself that they don't have homes and, and you know, a, the response in tents and et cetera is so important. And I think I just want to acknowledge your role um, over the history of your work um, on many of those issues. Well, well thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate uh, the acknowledgement, but I think that the, the, it's just as important is that people are willing to work with you and me and others who have Deep history. Some folks call us OGs. Some folks call us Rios. Uh, uh, we are the people who have information that we can impart to others so they can use it to improve their health status uh, and the community as a whole. And that's one of the things that uh, I really enjoy about this work is that we continue to, to impart that knowledge. Right. And I think also the mentoring that uh, I know you and I have done over the many years of the young people and who we watch becoming older and adults um, in the work. And I think that's going to be the future of this as well, is really bringing in the young people to, you know, uh, pick up the work that I think we have provided and the leadership and you know, I think, uh, you know, the mentoring uh, for many of the years that I'm, I'm sure you see people that you've mentored decades ago who are still, you know, who are now in big leadership roles um, in different areas. And I think that's the other part that the legacy that we're going to have to leave for them is the continual advocacy um, and the translation of through the bridges between government and private sector and public sector. Yes, that's an important role for us to play. And I, I think that one of the things I want to acknowledge is that when I was a young man coming through in, in the 70s and um, 80s in San Francisco, I had a group of men and women who took me under their wing and guided me through the process so that I didn't make the mistake that they made. They mentored me. And I want to acknowledge those folks because they were important. Um to me, and I think important to the community, and people really cared about what their positions I, I One of those people was Naomi Gray. Another was Flo Stroud. Uh, another was Willie B. Kennedy. Uh, and then there were the men, uh, black men and brown men, who were important to me as I grew up as a professional in San Francisco, and said to me, what you got, you got to give back. That's right. Pull that next person up. That's right. That's right. And I think that's really important. And like you, I myself had, um, you know, many mentors who even, 
you know, showed me the way to get to college, which I didn't even think that was the possibility for myself. And so as being mentored, the importance of mentoring. And I've also emphasized on the podcast the role of volunteering um, for young people, particularly because that's really where they can get to see how healthcare works. And, you know, you started talking about, you know, as you were growing up in San Francisco, but I know both of us are from the San Diego area. You want to share with us and with the audience, uh, Jimmy, uh, what got you into healthcare? I uh, actually went back to college uh, after doing a four-year stand as a football player. I went back to be a real student. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I went back, the notion was I was going to go into pre-law. And then I took this course uh, called Intergroup uh, Dynamics, Interpersonal Dynamics from a Black Perspective. Uh, and this course altered my career path because it showed me that there were many ways to be helpful and the law was not necessarily the only way to be helpful. And the course was Interpersonal Dynamics from a Black Perspective, and then across the hall was another course, uh, which we like to say euphemistically was Interpersonal Dynamics from a white perspective. And the two professors, unbeknownst to us, reached across the hall to each other and said, these classes are married, and you will go through this process together. So they co-taught it, and it just sort of opened up the, my eyes to the potential for working with people uh, far beyond the communities that, that I had lived in and grown up in, and began to look at what are the possibilities for me in terms of healthcare. So my first healthcare job was in 1972, uh, as a counselor uh, in a crisis clinic in San Diego, California. Very good. And then um, you and then you just continued on. When did you come into the Bay Area, Jimmy? I moved up here in, in 1972, and I kept going back to San Diego to finish my undergraduate work in, in the school year and then come back in summer. So I finally landed permanently here in 1976 and started working in the Haight-Ashbury in 1976 as a first counselor and then coordinator of clinical services for a program called Haight-Ashbury Center for Alcohol Program slash other drugs. And we were connected uh, by that through the free clinics because we had a skill set that they did not have. That's great. And then, um, you know, I know you've worked um, with the homeless population for many years. Um, what is the status right now? Of what kind of work are you trying to get at in terms of, you know, we know that uh, people have been trying to get people into hotels, um, you know, generating um, structures uh, or space for people to even stay in their tents, but be you know, that distance so that they could be uh, safer and healthier. Um, do you see that as kind of the next phases for this, for particularly the homeless population? Yeah, I mean, I'm a member of the local homeless coordinating board, and, and our function is to provide oversight to the homeless uh, services, uh, homeless and, and services uh, Office of the from the mayor's from the mayor's staff, and what we do uh, is that we have oversight over the federal funds, and we help them sort of identify where they want to spend those funds. It's a small part of the, the big budget that we have in San Francisco for homeless services. But one of the things that is clear to us and clear to the community is that when you look at the Timberline very specifically, and you look at parts of the mission as well, and parts of Bayview. There is currently living that has no support in terms of social services, in terms of health care, 
and all the our provider community, the community, the, the CBOs in the community are trying to get out there, and the health department is trying to get out to those disparate neighborhoods. We have too many folks that are unhoused and not enough staff to address this issue. So we're working very hard to increase the staff, the access to have people have access to um, homeless services. I mean, to say that we're going to move people out of tents into hotels without the necessarily uh, social services that go along with that is a mistake. We have to take charge, move quickly, and address these issues. Yeah, and, you know, it's a real example uh, around the country. Um, You know, I won't even emphasize the world because, you know, this pandemic has impacted all of us, but uh, focused on the U.S., um, you know, we in the Bay Area have so many more services than in many communities. Um, And being able to, um, you know, really look at how to house people correctly in terms of um, being able to provide that kind of emotional um, and even the social service needs that people have. And, and, you know, isolating particularly uh, drug users in uh, rooms who may be um, still injecting drugs is also, you know, kind of a danger zone if people aren't watching and being uh, mindful of uh, checking in on, on wellness checks with them. And so, you know, um, Jimmy, you were part of this um, work during the Loma Prieta earthquake, and out of that piece came um, the new shelters that now are their old shelters that are now um, not healthy for people because the number of people in a small space. And I can assume that in the future, you know, those shelters will not reopen in the type of structures footprints that are today. Would you say the same? Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. I, I remember when we um, created the what was called the Multi-Service Center South, which is the business, um, uh, Bryant, and then, then the Multi-Service Center North, which is on Polk and Geary. We, we built those from the ground up, including what kind of furniture was going to be in there uh, and how we were going to house people both men and women, how to segregate both populations of men and women. And how we opened it up was that when, um, I don't know if you were here then, there was a camp across the street from City Hall, which was euphemistically named Camp Agnos. And I was charged of representing Julia Lopez and the Department of Social Social Services at that time, DFS, uh, with removing people from that camp and putting them in those two centers. And so what we did is 72 hours prior to removal, we went out and put signs out and handed out leaflets and told people in Camp Agnos across the street from City Hall, you will have to move in 72 hours. We will provide vans for you to go north or south to two multi-service centers uh, so that you don't have to live outside. Uh, and... Uh, there was another option, and we said, if you don't get in the white bands, which were the map bands, mobile assistance patrol bands, you will get in the black and white and you will be taken to jail. That's not what we would like to have happen, but that's what will happen because this place needs to be closed down for health and safety reasons. So many of the folks uh, got in the two white bands and went to the two multi-service centers, but there were some who said, I'm not going anywhere, and then they, those were arrested by the police department. But we made clear to people, which is, this was really important to them, look, you get in the white van, you go to one of those two places, no one's going to keep you captured. If you decide you want to go in, you don't have to. But you do have to leave here. Right, right. And so thinking of that, that those two uh, shelters and many more became institutionalized 
so to speak, in terms of uh, they became permanent um, within the community where you had to start those to try to address a problem. I imagine that if we looked at ourselves in the next couple of years, um, I imagine still, you know, um, safe villages, as they're calling them, um, with tents um, because of the inability to respond to, um, you know, housing needs. And then those in these uh, individual hotel rooms will continue to have to stay in some form or another. Um, and um, those are the two solutions for really trying to respond to the homeless population. And, you know, it's a lot better, Jimmy, than leaving people just out there with no sanitation, no bathrooms, um, and the distancing and the lack thereof. And the, you know, because, you know, we'd always visited people in their tents, but the structure that is now set up with ensuring their hygiene needs is probably one of the biggest game changers of the shelter intent kind of, so to speak, um, situations that I think have improved those conditions of people living in tents. I would agree. And I, and I want to acknowledge that that you were one of the leaders who created um the services that were available that I forget the name that was used when at at, at uh, Bill Graham Auditorium where people oh, could uh, come in and get some right Project Homeless Connect that provided yes. you know a very yes. com- comprehensive mental health mm-hmm. mental health dental work uh, podiatry you name it and folks can come to that one place and get those services and be referred to shelters if if they will desire to go into them. Uh, although there weren't enough beds in those times, at least there was one place. Now we sort of have this um, this first notion of getting to people where they are uh, and addressing their issues where they are. I also want to acknowledge your work in terms of harm reduction because a practical application of harm reduction is in the hotels where we can have people who have substance abuse or use issues, uh, both alcohol uh, and coming off opiates, we're now providing them with uh, alcohol and methadone in a medically managed way so they don't need the hotels, expose themselves to, to COVID-19 and come back to the hotel and expose others in the hotel to COVID-19. And that's a harm reduction model that I'm sure brings some sort of controversy with it, but it also at the same time, it reduces the risk of those people who are housed in hotels, both the staff and the people who are in the room and the community to COVID-19 exposure. And that's critical and essential. And so I want to acknowledge your work in developing that model of harm reduction. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, that model, I think, is a real important one, particularly for those who are alcoholics. And we know that, uh, you know, um, cravings of alcohol, um, you know, are really dangerous. Um, if someone is, um, DTing from those or detoxing from those, um, you know, it really can, um, end up and we've had another, um, visitor on, uh, a guest on the, um, podcast who talked about the dangers, you know, it's more dangerous than any other drug detoxification is alcohol. So kind of continuing. And we know we looked at that model in Canada. That's a very successful model. Um, to work with alcoholics and 
reducing their alcohol use, but giving continuing to give it to them in a, in a period of time and a, a smaller amount really has reduced hospitalizations and also helped them function better. Um, and it's kind of contraindicated for people in the general public to understand that. Um, but that is a real important part of harm reduction is to really try to look at how to re, um, reduce uh, deaths. And I think this is a, a model that's going to have to probably, if we think about this in the future, it's going to be the model that's going to have to stick because people cannot be in these large facilities sleeping, um, you know, so closely together. Um, and I think it, it's going to really change the way that we're going to uh, be able to provide services to large amounts of people because we're not going to be able to have these kinds of large facilities anymore uh, being built because just of the safety factor of COVID-19. Now, if a vaccine happens, you know, that'll help us in terms of those kinds of facilities. But, you know, knowing how long you and I worked on looking at will there be a vaccine for HIV and AIDS and what types of medications, I can't imagine that it's going to be 24 months before we even see something that's in a mass production that can really hit the communities that we serve. Yeah, and I have a, a legitimate fear that how long will San Francisco continue to pay for these hotel rooms uh, for folks who are currently unhoused? Uh, and at some point, that's going to stop. And then where do they go from there? Because we still don't have the capacity to respond to the need that we have in San Francisco around homeless folks. Well, the number is 7,200 homeless folks or 8,000, right. which you know varies depending on who's doing the counting. We still don't have a way to service those folks after the hotel rooms are no longer available to us. Uh, what happens to those families with children? Who are out there, uh, who are now housed in hotels, but may not be housed in those hotels, certainly won't be hit there 24 months from now. That's for sure. Right. And, you know, when um, I responded to the Loma Prieta earthquake in Watsonville, where, you know, we had, I think it was over 3,000 families that were impacted and homeless living in parks, you know, FEMA finally came through and started giving trailers. Um, that lasted for a couple of years, and then the trailers were taken away, and um, and I think that same, and the fact that the federal government has basically not, isn't supporting um, the states, and that really, um, really hurts the state government, which of course, everything goes downhill to the counties, yeah. to our local communities, to our local CBOs. Um, and um, I think that, you know, uh, we're going to have a lot of work to do to continue to keep people safe, to keep people healthy. And even housing is not going to be something, I mean, just like you said, we're going to end up having a lot more people um, in the streets and hopefully uh, in tents and hopefully in areas where they can be safe. I mean, I just don't see any other direction in that. Um, and I think that the work that people are doing now is so important. And if we get a vaccine, that'll be really important and more housing being built. But, you know, can, thinking of what this future economy looks like, um, I think we're going to have a hard road to continue to work for the homeless and not deal with the fact that we're just going to have a larger population in the streets. Yes, I, I agree. And I think that if we look back to uh, the Loma Prieta um, earthquake, what happened is that San Francisco and San Jose and a couple of other cities ended up suing FEMA for relief uh, from what happened to those folks who lost their housing during the earthquake. FEMA's position was 
that they were, in fact, marginally housed and therefore already homeless, and they weren't going to pay for the hotel rooms that we acquired during um, the aftermath of the Loma Prieta earthquake. We ended up suing the federal government and winning, and the federal government had to reimburse us for the cost of housing those folks uh, in uh, SROs during um, the aftermath of Loma Prieta. And, and, and it was crazy. I mean, to suggest that which the federal government did, that they were already marginally housed or homeless, so why should we pay for your setting them up in housing? Makes no sense. Right, right, especially when that's the solution to their needs. So, you know, I think, Jimmy, we're going to have um, a long road into recovery, and um, I'm, you know, how lucky are we to have somebody like yourself and the caliber of your dedication and the work that you've provided and, you know, just the, um, the complete uh, commitment of your life to, to these communities. And on behalf of Healthcare Untold, you know, personally and for the show, we just really want to thank you being one of the heroes of Healthcare Untold. Um, want to give you some last comments, uh, Jimmy, in terms for the audience uh, to hear from you. Yeah, I think that the last thing I say is that volunteerism is important. And this is, and I suggest folks that you have a skill set that can be used uh, help, helpfully in our community and bring that to the table, whether it's bagging groceries at a food bank or it is using your skill sets as a clinician or using your skill set as a person who just brings the body and will do anything to help in this process, please do so. Volunteerism is one of the ways that got me started in being in the public health arena. And also it allowed me to be a part of boards of directors of nonprofits and see firsthand the, the work that folks do uh, at the street level, at the ground level. So if you have some time, and all of us have some time right now, please volunteer. Please be a part of the solution to our problem. Right. I want to really emphasize that uh, what Jimmy says is uh, for uh, people to volunteer their skills. I've also been uh, emphasizing paying it forward, you know, really supporting the people around you who are your uh, supporters, whether they're cleaning your houses because they're not cleaning them right now. They need your support, your landscapers and even people at the gym who aren't working right now. If you have a trainer, get them on uh, FaceTime and pay them up. So, and uh, keep your exercise up. Um, again, uh, Jimmy, thank you so much for your commitment and your lifetime commitment to uh, our communities. Um, thank you, Jim, Jimmy Lois, for being a, uh, a guest on Healthcare Untold. Um, please send comments to Healthcare Untold to our Facebook. I also want to thank Gerardo Sandoval, Dr. G, for his technical and production support. Healthcare Untold will also be supporting local businesses who are transitioning to different modes of sale. Please support these businesses to help them thriving. Until next time, stay safe, stay home, wear a mask, get your exercise. This is Barbara Ann Garcia at Healthcare Untold.